Well, let's open up our Bibles. Would you, with, would you do that with me? Hopefully you have one. If you don't, hopefully there's one near you by, in the pews. We're going to be opening up to the Gospel of John. John chapter 18. Now, I can't say that I'm always a fan of roller coasters. But I would say, if I had to be, I would choose the wood ones. Do you want to know why? Just because it adds a layer of intensity. The steel girding and all that stuff on the new ones, you're safe. The wood ones, just puts that little edge on there, doesn't it? Well, it might be true of all roller coasters, but especially on the wooden ones, it is. You get this sense that you are definitely not in control of this ride. You're strapped in, and it starts moving, and it makes the first turn. And and I'm betting most, if not all of you, have been there. Make the first turn. And then you begin to hear the scaffolding creak as people and people are talking and it's going fine and then you come to what's called the lift hill the big huge hill at the beginning of the ride and then you start to wonder is this okay when was the last time they checked this then you start the first that ascent and you feel the chain lift catch the bottom of the roller coaster And for those few seconds, you feel, I can trust the human engineers that made this. Because I'm still locked in. We're going up. Nothing's crazy is happening. You're locked in that chain that's not going to let you fall. And then comes the peak. And the chain stops at the peak. But you're not thinking about that because you look across the skyline or whatever it is that you're going to be, well, the area around the amusement park. You look over the city. And then you remember again not in control. Because that slope of the track and the laws of physics kick in. And you start, the the roller coaster starts to slowly go and pick up speed and just hurdles down that huge first hill. And then, not only that, to remind you that you're not in control, but everybody else is not, not in control either. And they're screaming their heads off. You're not looking at the skyline anymore. You're looking down at the bottom of this track, and as the whole structure shakes and rumbles, you really can't guarantee if you're ever going to come out on top, come out of that. And maybe if you overthink it, you'll believe that God has abandoned you. And this was the one time where they didn't check the beams and the bolts before they opened the park. And then when you get to the bottom, that the track is going to break, and then you're going to die. Now, for some of us, that's exhilarating. For other of us, others of us, that's terrifying. You feel that you're not in control. Now, for roller coasters, given their track record, we're pretty confident that they're not that they're going to hold up and allow us to enjoy the whole ride, right? But what if we did get on the thing and really, truly believe that it was going to break? And that the world as you knew it was only going to go downhill as soon as you actually did. Because we're on a roller coaster right now. Life. And maybe right now you feel as though your world and the world around you 
is hurtling right into the concrete through those fragile wooden trellis structures. This actually might be you later. It comes to us as all at some point. But at some point, as you're hurtling down, you're going to realize that things are really, really intense in your life, and you're not in control. So the question is, is who are you going to look to? Who is really in control? We get a picture of who's in control, because the first disciples of Jesus felt exactly like this, even though they would have no idea what a roller coaster is. Because as Linda mentioned, we are in the last, actually we're in the last hours of Jesus' life. And even up to this point, where we're in in John chapter 18, the disciples still feel like things are in control because it's been all talk at this point. Judas has been sent out. Nobody knows why. Jesus has given a lot of instruction and he's let them in on a prayer, an amazing uplifting, building prayer to his Heavenly Father. Right there, they're going on the lift hill. But this chapter this morning, where we're going to be the first few verses, is where it gets real. And it seems like no one is in control or the wrong people are in control and that the world as they knew and their hopes and their dreams we're going to be dashed to pieces. Who is really in control? So if you've gotten there, please stand as we read God's Word together and hear what He has to say to us this morning. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You have a seat. If you read this like the first disciples first saw it, you would say that everyone but Jesus is in control. 
But if we read it with the understanding of the Holy Spirit, we must see that the Christ is in control. Let me say it again. We must see that Christ is in control. That begs the question, doesn't he? How does he display control in this passage? Well, first, Jesus displays control by situational mastery. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? How does he do this? How does he display control and situational mastery? Because he's betrayed, and it seems like he's walking into a trap. Yep, exactly. First, he displays control and situational mastery because he sets the place. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You would think that this remote place, this probably private owned, privately owned garden, across a ravine on the eastern side of Jerusalem, would be a great retreat and a great hiding spot that no one would know, right? Except for one fact. Judas knows about it. And Jesus has gone there often enough that it's, most like, it's the most likely spot for him to be come sundown. Judas knows about it. The second fact. Jesus has, knows that his betrayer is already out going, doing betraying. Actually, verse 2 can literally read, now Judas, who was betraying him, in that moment, and Jesus knows that Judas knows about the place. And he still intentionally takes himself and his disciples to a place where, if it's like most gardens, there's usually only one way in and one way out. Little chance of escape. Jesus sets the place. And secondly, he sets the time. Because it says in, in verse 2, now, Judah, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The lanterns and torches tell us that this is not daytime. Jesus doesn't, and Jesus doesn't go out at night just because. Where were they? They were in an upper room having dinner. The host of that room probably would have let them stay the night. Because he go, but Jesus and his disciples go there at night because that's when Judas, who was possessed by Satan and sent out by Jesus, that's when, Ju that's when Judas was supposed to fulfill what Jesus had told him to do said in John chapter 13 verse 27 he said what you are going to do do quickly so he goes there at night and at night none of the supporters of Jesus 
be around to stop this large group. Anywhere from a few dozen and extreme estimates to 600 people coming for him. He sets the time, so they come with lanterns and torches and weapons ready for a fight. They're ready for a manhunt across the terrain of the Mount of Olives. But the Christ is in control. So thirdly, he sets the place, he sets the time, and he sets the tone. Because look what it says in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knew what a horrible night he would face. Jesus knew the gruesome death on a Roman cross that he would experience the next day. And he stepped forward. They were armed, this mob, and they were expecting a fleeing criminal, but not a figure in the dark who comes before them before they say a word. And he asks the first question, whom do you seek? It's kind of a weird question. If Jesus knows all that's going to happen to him, why does he ask whom do you seek? Well, this question is, as one commentator put it, is not to gather information. It's to reveal who's really in charge. before they can make any call of their own. He sets the tone that everything that is going to happen is under his control. His situational mastery displays to us that we must see that the Christ is in control. So he asks them, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek, church? Do you know whom you're seeking? Do you seek the Christ who is in control? Do you know that he who had every moment of his own earthly life under control is also the one who right now, Scripture says, upholds the universe by his power and in whom all things hold together? Do you seek him? Do you seek him as he is? Secondly, Jesus displays control by divine authority. He asks them, whom do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) They're right. Jesus is from Nazareth, but he's more. It is clear from their response that they think he's just a man. And when Jesus is thought of as just a man, he's thought of as not in control. But he's not just a man. He is fully man, fully human. But he is God in the flesh with divine authority. So here's the question. What does he have the right to do as God in the flesh? What does divine authority entail then? Well, first, he has authority to use the divine name. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
And actually, in the Greek, it's just I am. Judas, who, is be- who betrayed him, same thing, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. I have not. Praise God for it. But people getting arrested are usually either extremely belligerent or extremely afraid. Sometimes they're belligerent because they're afraid. Jesus was neither. So he is already incredibly intimidating. Making the first move, asking them who's really in charge, in the dark, lit only by torchlight. And they likely heard this guy teach in the temple, so they knew that he spoke as one who had authority. And they say to the one whom they think, and they say who they think he is, and he responds with who he really is. I am he. And anyone who has read the New Testament, you will know that that is the name that God presents himself with to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am. And it's throughout the scriptures. Isaiah. And you will know that I am he. Jesus invokes the name. And what happens? They pull back and fall to the ground. And not just the soldiers and the officers and from the chief priests. Get this. Judas, who was with them, not with Jesus, did the same thing. Let's remember this. Who is running the show in Judas' world right now? No. Satan is possessing Judas at that moment. So guess who falls to the ground when Jesus says, I am he! Satan, our enemy. Even Satan must bow to the name. The name of God. Who he is. For us who believe, it's a different story. It is the greatest greatest assurance of a God who loves us for us who trust in him through faith in Christ alone. Because it doesn't say anything about the true disciples falling back in fear. But to the enemies of God, the name of God is a terror. Because it is the name that which, which exposes them for who they are. A wicked mob with wicked intents. And before Christ rescues us, the name of God should scare us and expose us for who we are, apart from Him. Jesus has authority to use the divine name. Secondly, He has authority to command obedience. So they, so he, so they ask Him, so He them again, "Whom do you seek?" Verse seven. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe with a little less bravado this time. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. <laughs> Look at the turn of the tables. The guy who is being arrested is the one calling the shots. 
but he has authority to do so. Who is he? He's the shepherd of the sheep. His sheep are not the ones given the mission, mission to secure salvation for people. Jesus, the good shepherd, as John records, he is the one given that mission. Jesus has authority to command obedience. And thirdly, the good shepherd does not just command obedience of this mob. He also has authority to lay down his life. something happens before Jesus is taken away. And Peter tell and Jesus tells Peter, "Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" This situation, the tension. If you've had to, if you've ever had to confront somebody just on a minor thing, it's there's some tension in the air. This the tension is so thick you could cut it with a knife. And when a man's world is deteriorating around him, in front of him, he often tries to cut that tension with the biggest thing he has. So Peter whips out a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Welcome to the PG-13 R-rated Bible. Servant's name was Malchus. <laughs> this is like a guy whipping out a knife in front of the police. What's happening here? One of the sheep, Peter, one of the true sheep, Simon Peter, who is not seeing Christ in control, tries to bite. But Jesus has authority to lay down his life. Peter doesn't have authority to try to save his masters. And this is us. For Simon Peter. We can't save ourselves or anyone else. Only Christ can. And only God gets to set how that happens. And when we don't recognize our need for Jesus to do what he did, when we don't see him in control, we try to control the situation. We try to be our own savior by doing what we think will save us. And we make things worse. You know what that's called? That's the very thing that Jesus came to take away. That's called sin trying to save ourselves. So what does Jesus do? Jesus calls Peter to repentance and faith. He said, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Basically saying, You're not going to stop this, Peter. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not the sheep laying down theirs by fighting for him. He drinks the cup of suffering and death. He lays down his life so that they can live. Jesus displays control by divine authority. 
Are you seeing yet that we must see that the Christ is in control? There's another way he displays control in this passage. Thirdly, Jesus displays control by fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy being those things spoken either by God directly or through people whom God has anointed to speak that come to pass because God is in control. Because how does Jesus continue his answer when they, when they say again, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth? He says in verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And then it says, then John puts this remark in there, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Which prophecies in this passage does he fulfill? And what's cool about this is that these are prophecies not just found in the Old Testament. There are tie-overs, continuations of that same theme and thread in the New Testament. Because actually the ones mentioned here are found directly in the New Testament. So which does he fulfill? Well, the first one, as we just read, is he keeps all who are his. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And where does that come from? Remember, he was praying this just a moment ago to his father, back in John 17, verse 12, in selfless care for his disciples. And he says, in John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What Jesus is doing here physically for his first disciples is what is guaranteed to believers in Jesus spiritually. Do you know that right now, your Savior is keeping you? Why? Because you're his. He keeps those who are his. Secondly, he fulfills prophecy by following the Father's plan. Because after Peter puts that test of not losing one, Peter just about got, got to be the one, right? You pull a sword on, in front of, front of a bunch of soldiers, come on, Peter. Jesus rebuked him by saying in verse 11, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And what he means is when he says, Drink the cup that the Father has given me, is that this has been the plan all along. Now there is some debate, as there is with many things in the Bible, some of that's good debate, some of that's just total garbage, but this is a good one. Whether this cup is the cup of God's wrath or the cup of God's or the cup of suffering. For our purposes today, it's at least suffering. Because how Jesus suffered. God in the flesh deserved to be treated so much better. And not just physical suffering which he said his disciples would drink the same cup in Mark chapter 10. This is spiritual suffering. Because holy and pure and righteous God being, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 puts it, says, for our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin. 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You read of God's plan for his Christ in Isaiah chapter 53. I'll just read one verse. Verse 4. The whole thing is loaded with it. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But Jesus displays control by fulfilling prophecy. Now, as we look at this, some would say that God the Father, because of this plan, is not a good father. He is not to be believed because this shows that he is guilty of what they call divine child abuse. How should we respond to that? Well, that would be true if Jesus were a victim. Not the Christ in control. He is the Christ, the Savior who is in control, who willingly comes, who willingly fulfills prophecy, who willingly lays down the line, his life. There's, no, there's one more prophecy. Thirdly, he dies instead of us. Because after this super tense scene, it doesn't seem to let up because verse 12 says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John Calvin wrote in his commentary of this passage, he said, Let us remember that the body of the Son of God was bound in order that our souls might be set free from the bonds of sin. So as he's arrested, they lead the Son of God to the high priestly family. This is a huge irony, because the high priests were supposed to be the ones who were ready for the Messiah most. Well, they're not. They're actually functioning like, think, think, think the movie or the series The Godfather. They're acting like a mob family. And then the formally acting high priest, Caiaphas, gives wicked counsel to the Jews to kill Jesus instead of the nation being killed by the Romans. It seems like things are not in control, except that what Caiaphas said, if you remember, back in John chapter 11, verses 51 through 52, is not just advisement or counsel that he gave. Listen to what it says in John chapter 11, verses 51 through 52. He, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God is in control. He dies for our sins instead of us. He is for us. We must see that the Christ is in control. Now as we see it that way, let's be clear about something. 
what happened here is evil. We can objectively call it evil. The intents of the hearts of the people coming to arrest Jesus were evil. And God will hold them responsible. We should not think of sin as no big deal just because God is in control. There's very real consequences, as every single one of us know. And he thinks it's such a big deal that only the Son of God can take sin away by dying on the cross. So what he wants us to do in hearing and seeing this is he wants us to confess our sin to him and leave it on the cross and put on his new righteous life, which he, the Christ who is in control, can give us. confess our sin and leave it there at the cross as often as we must. The story seems to be going down to the bottom of the roller coaster, right? The tracks keep going, though, and the structure holds up. Because we have a Savior. We have Christ who has gone through the most intense of sufferings and leads us through the suffering we face as his followers. Because for the followers of Christ, the life that we're on is a life undergirded by truth and reality of the cross. A wooden structure that will hold up better by far than any roller coaster that we could ever build. Jesus also said in John chapter 10, he said, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it back up again. And he did because he's in control. The question is, do you trust that he's in control? Do you see that he is? We must see that the Christ is in control. Let's pray. Let's pray.